0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 152. It's titled, You Know Less Than You Think. In 1986, Christopher Knight drove his car deep into the woods of his native Maine. He said, I drove until I was nearly out of gas. I took a small road, then a small road off that small road, then a trail off that. He parked his car, left the keys on the center console, and walked into the forest. He didn't walk out of the woods for 27 years, living in complete isolation the entire time. I can't explain my actions, he said. I had no plans when I left. I wasn't thinking of anything. I just did it. Michael Finkel relates Knight's story in his book, The Stranger in the Woods. Knight carried little with him into the wilderness, some basic camping supplies, and a few pieces of clothing. He had little food, no gun or fishing gear in order to get something to eat. I had what I had, he said, and nothing more. I kept largely to the ridges and sometimes crossed swamps going from one ridge to another. Soon I lost track of where I was. I didn't didn't care. I kept going. I was content in the choice I had made. Content, except for one thing, explains Finkel, food. Knight was hungry, and he really didn't know how he would feed himself. His departure from the outside world was a confounding mix of incredible commitment and complete lack of forethought. Not all that strange for a 20-year-old. It was as if he went camping for the weekend and then didn't come home for a quarter of a century. He was an able hunter and angler, but he took neither a gun nor a rod with him. Knight decided to forage, but there are no fruit trees in Maine and in the woods, and the berry season is very, very short. Knight came face-to-face with the reality of being human, We like to think we are completely independent thinkers, but the reality is we are highly dependent on the environment and others to help us think and solve problems. I read a fascinating book this past week by Steven Sloman and Philip Fernbach. It's called The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. They write, the mind processes information so that individuals can act so that they can transform the environment to their liking. The world serves as a memory and is part of the thought process, but a single thinker can only do so much. In nature, we often see complex behavior arise through the coordination of multiple individuals. When multiple cognitive systems work together, group intelligence can emerge that goes beyond what each individual is capable of. The division of cognitive labor makes the difference between the comfort and safety in society and being alone in the wild, just like Christopher Knight was. He survived 27 years in the woods by tapping in to a community of knowledge that developed the modern food distribution system. In other words, he survived by breaking into cabins and stealing groceries, breaking the locks with screwdrivers and other tools he also stole from cabins. He tapped into the community knowledge. He couldn't survive alone. Sloman and Firmbach write, We think the knowledge we have about how things work sits inside our skulls, when in fact we're drawing a lot of it from the environment and from other people. For example... Psychologist Rebecca Lawson from the University of Liverpool showed a group of psychology undergraduates a drawing of a bicycle that was missing the chain, pedals, and several parts of the frame. She asked the students to fill in the missing part, to just draw them on to the paper. About half the students were unable to complete the drawings correctly of this this seemingly straightforward contraption. Could you do it if there was just part of a bicycle? Could you actually fill out? the remaining points, probably could be challenging. And why is that? Because we don't need to know the details of all the different parts of a bike in order to ride one. All we need to know is that if we turn the pedals, the bike will move forward. Sloman and Furback write, Thought is for action. Thinking evolved as an extension of the ability to act effectively. Thought allows us to select from among the set of possible actions by predicting the effects of each action and by imagining how the world would be if we had taken different actions in the past. Thought is masterful at extracting only what it needs and filtering out everything else. When you hear a sentence uttered, your speech recognition system goes to work with extracting The gist, the underlying meaning of the utterance, and forgetting the specific words. I I see this when I'm speaking in Spanish and listening to people. It it sort of all blends together, because I'm just trying to get the meaning, not necessarily every single word. If we need to know the specifics of how a bicycle works, we can look it up on YouTube, and we can do the same for most other topics. Most of us might have an area where we are truly experts, but in most other areas, we actually know, you know, our memory is very, very sparse. Much of what our knowledge is, is actually placeholders and pointers, knowing where we can find the missing information, where we can look it up at the time that we need it, and how that information fits in relative to the other placeholders in our mind. Many years ago, I read a book by Pierre Bayard on how to talk about books you haven't read. And that was his point, that most of our knowledge are placeholders. And so when we read a book, we're just, we don't remember most of what's in it. We just fit it into context. How does it fit relative to the other books we have read? It's topic, it's subject, and it's comparison. Just where does it fit? Where's that pointer or placeholder? Studies show that couples that have been together a long time distribute demand on memories by specializing in different areas. And this is probably a, a, this is the best example to understand this concept, that most of our thinking is occurring outside. We have outsourced our memory to the environment, to other people. And Lapro and I are perfect examples of this. She relies on me for things related to finance. And I depend on her for items related to decorating, remodeling our homes, and in many cases, fixing stuff that breaks. I just all those specifics, i I depend on her. Adrian Ward of the University of Texas asked people in a relationship, how long had they been with their partner, and how much of the financial decision making they were responsible for. People responsible for financial matters got more financially literate as the length of the relationship increased. Is that like that how's How, how about your relationship? Laper and I over the years have kind of gone back and forth in terms of who was doing the budget, particularly in the early years. But the last couple of decades i've been handling the financial things, and she depends on me for that now that there's a risk of that because if I die it it it's <laughs> We need to solve that particular problem, but that's normal that people, you have subject matter experts in your relationship. Adrian Ward says, for me, this story is about how relying on others affects our attention, which feeds into learning and knowledge, which feeds into decision-making and downstream outcomes. If you are bad at finances, but are tasked with the financial responsibility, you pay attention to the financial stuff in the environment and that helps you get better. If you offload financial responsibility, you don't even notice financial information. Now, the brain is not like a computer. It doesn't sit there and, if there's a problem, sort of calculate all the options, do the mathematics. It uses heuristics and simple rules of thumb. And I talked about this in episode 34, Investment Rules of Thumb. And in there, I gave the example of a baseball player opening Opening day for many Major League Baseball teams in the U.S. was this week. And when you think about how a when they when a batter hits the ball, the player in the outfield, the ball is coming toward them. They're not making a lot of calculations. They're using the environment to catch the ball. They see the ball coming toward them, and then they keep their gaze so that their head and their neck slowly moves up at the same pace. And so they as they run... They're essentially keeping that gaze gradually moving up as their neck rises to where right they're under the ball. So they're at the steepest angle right when they catch the ball. And so they're using the environment to to essentially think, to solve a problem, because we think so that we can act. And our brain wants to figure out how to act and figure out the possibilities with using as little energy as possible. And as a result, relative to a computer hard drive, the memory capacity of the brain is quite puny. Cognitive scientist pioneer Thomas Landauer conducted several innovative studies to determine the human memory has about one gigabyte in storage capacity. That's it, way, way less than our computer hard drives. So we think we know so much more than we do. Sloman and Fernbach write, The nature of thought is to seamlessly draw on knowledge wherever it can be found, inside and outside our own heads. We live under a knowledge illusion because we fail to draw an accurate line between what is inside our head and outside our heads. And we fail because there is no sharp line. So we frequently don't know what we don't know. And we can test ourselves. For example, what if you had to explain... How a refrigerator works in in great detail, or a television, or your eyesight, the internet. What if you have to explain what central bankers do all day, or interest rate policy? Where does blue ink come from? What are the mechanics that cause global warming? Most of us, including me, can't explain that in a great deal of detail, but we know where to find it. And, and so knowing we can look something up actually makes us feel smarter. We, we have confidence that we actually know more than we do because we know where to find it. And we don't always make that distinction. Back to the knowledge illusion book. We've seen that the world is complex, even more complex that, than one might have, have thought. So why aren't we overwhelmed by this complexity if we're so ignorant? How can we get around, sound knowledgeable, and take ourselves seriously while understanding only a fraction of what there is to know? The answer is we do so by living a lie. We ignore complexity by overestimating what we know about how things work, by living life in the belief that we know how things work even when we don't. We tell ourselves that we understand what is going on, that our opinions are justified by our knowledge, and that our actions are grounded in justified beliefs, even though they are not. We tolerate complexity by failing to recognize it. That the illusion, that is the illusion of understanding. And there was a fascinating study described in the book where they put eye trackers on individuals and they had them, they put them in front of a computer screen and told them to read. And and so they read the text on the computer screen. But there, there was only a small window right where the person was looking where the text actually made sense. It was about 17 or 18 characters wide. So two or three characters to the left, 15 characters to the right, about six words. So somebody standing behind the person with the eye tracker would see a bunch of gibberish on the screen. But the person reading, even if they moved around, they only saw that little window. And there, the screen made perfect sense. They assumed that everything else in the screen was normal because even with that small glimpse, that, that's what they saw. We draw conclusions of the world based on these small glimpses because our baseline assumption is everything is normal unless proven otherwise. I And so we're constantly sort of looking for things that might be normal and, and or abnormal, but generally even looking around a room. If you close your eyes and try to reconstruct what is in your room in a great amount of detail, wherever you happen to be. And and it's very, very difficult to do. We know we can look. I can look to the right or to the left and see it. And I assume everything else around me is normal. The other day I was walking in the park and, and just most of what we see, we just kind of ignore. And there were some kids on the sh- swing, but something caught my eye. There was there was something on a swing that just seemed out of, out of normal, just, just it was, and, and, I, and I, I caught my eye and I looked at it, it turned out it was a kid, it had a very colorful coat on his head, but it looked like he didn't have a head at all. And so just that, that, sh- that little incident of, well, that's not normal, and then my eye was drawn to it. But most of the time, we, we think things are normal. Now, before I share the downside to this knowledge illusion, let me share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. So what are some of the downsides to this community of knowledge, this tapping into the hive mind? Well, first, we miss out on things if we only know them through the knowledge and experience of others. Take travel. If If we've never been to Paris and never walked the streets but only know it through others' experience or through movies, we miss out. Or if they're classic novels, War and Peace, if you've never read it, it's a great piece of literature. And if we've not read it, then we miss out. course, we have to be selective because there's only so much time. Probably a more significant risk is overconfidence. There's this fuzzy line. Remember, the world is very, very complex, and our brain tricks us because much of our knowledge that we think we have, we don't really have. And there there was a study, the fascinating study the authors did. They asked people to search the internet to answer a simple question about finance. So so what is a stock share? So they, so the, the, the participants would look up what's a stock share. Then the, the study designers would ask the participants to play an unrelated game of finance. So there's a game had nothing to do with what they looked up on the internet. But in the game, they had to, to make specific bets on in terms of an investing performance. And they found that people who had searched the internet bet a lot more than those who did not. So just searching about investing on the internet and then going and doing an exercise, even though they didn't really know much more about finance, they felt more confidence in their knowledge and were willing to stake money on what they thought. I saw this myself when it comes to commodities. For for a couple of years ago, I was experimenting investing in commodity futures and felt confident in my knowledge because... One, I had met with and visited commodity hedge funds. I have an MBA in finance. I've studied finance. But I felt confident in my knowledge, even though probably, well, certainly overconfident. And I found out I don't know much about commodities. And it's a really, really difficult area to invest. But sometimes just having a little bit of knowledge makes us feel overly confident in what we know. And that can sometimes lead us into trouble. This this community of knowledge can lead to incorrect beliefs. The authors write, Beliefs are hard to change because they are wrapped up with our values and identities, and they are shared with our community. Moreover, what is actually in our head, our causal models are sparse and often wrong. This explains why false beliefs are so hard to weed out. We might have strong political beliefs, About a certain way that the world works. And and that's rooted in our community. I know people that uh, on the left and on the right, their their entire community is people that think like them. And when you ask them to describe a particular policy and its its effects in detail, they can't do it. Now, often when they when when asked, and they've done studies when they've asked people to describe a policy and, and its consequences in detail. Afterwards, the participants just didn't feel as strongly about it. They were not as extreme. But oftentimes, if it's something related to our values and identities, it doesn't matter if you get more information because, and and our models might be wrong, or there just might be an aspect of the community knowledge that's right. Global warming. Those that are against global warming and, and don't believe it's human cause can point to very, very instances of, of their view that actually might be correct. Not the entire thing, but just a part of it. But because most of us don't have detailed models and explanations, but rely on that community of knowledge, it's very, very difficult to, to overcome. The, the authors say, sometimes communities get the science wrong, usually in ways that are supported by causal models. And the knowledge illusion means that we don't check our understanding often or deeply enough. This is a recipe for anti-scientific thinking. And that's one of the things we have to do. We have to check our understanding, step back and say, can I really explain this? Is this really how it works? Am I depending too much on other people in my community for the knowledge that I have? And, and so we, we need to check ourselves and to think deeply, to step back. Sometimes this, this community of knowledge and the way our brain works it's it's faulty. For example, we're not very good at nonlinear thinking. And to do finance and investing, you need to understand nonlinear thinking, particularly the power of compounding. It's a study by Craig McKenzie of the University of California, San Diego, and Michael Lear. He's head of behavioral finance at Merrill Lynch Wealth Management. What they did is they asked participants of the study, assume that you deposit $400 every month into a retirement account, and that you earn 10% year rate of interest. How much money will you have in your account in 40 years? So let's think, let's think about that a minute. $400 every month earning 10% a year for 40 years. How much money would you have? Well, the median participant guessed $223,000. The right answer is $2.5 So they were off significantly because this idea of compounding, that just doesn't come naturally. It's not a linear model. It's an exponential type model. And and we see this this in terms of how people are saving for retirement or their finances. 25% of U.S. households are confident that they could come up with $2,000 in 30 days. Only 25%. 75% couldn't come up with $2,000. The median household heading into retirement has only enough savings to live on for three years because we don't realize the power of compounding because we're not linear thinkers. So what's the solution here to this to the, the downside of this community of knowledge? The fact that the world is incredibly complex and to keep ourselves from being overwhelmed with that complexity, we think we know more than we do. Well, one solution is not more information, not trying to, to, to feed people more information. The the solution is, particularly when it comes to finance-related items, is less complexity, simple rules. When when I look at that, how I invest now and teach on money for the rest of us and on money for the rest of us plus, we're focusing on seven steps. The more I run that site, the more... The the more I try to simplify it so people can follow the steps and understand how to build a portfolio. Simple rules. Save 20% of your income. Instead of doing complex Monte Carlo analysis, just start. Save 20% of your income. And and that that's a very important component. Another thing we can do is what's known as just-in-time financial education. And I'm seeing this right now. So I have a son who is getting married next month. He's setting up his apartment, and he's facing financial decisions for the the first time that he's not faced. So now he needs some financial knowledge, and he's coming to me with questions. But it's just-in-time financial knowledge. We can do that ourselves when it comes to, to any type of knowledge. Don't rely entirely on the community. When it's time to know something, go ahead and learn it and spend some time, particularly when it comes to investing. We can all learn investing and in basic financial concept. We can all build a diversified portfolio plan. We just have to go in and get that just-in-time knowledge. Here's what Ray Dalio says. He is founder and co-chief investment officer at Bridgewater Associates, one of the most successful hedge funds in the world. He writes, my success is due to how I deal with not knowing, how I go look for where I might be wrong. I love to find people who disagree with me. I can see it through their eyes and I can consider, is that right or wrong? The learning experience helps me learn more and it also helps me make better decisions. So it is dealing with what one doesn't know that's more effective than knowing. And that's really the key to be a successful lifelong learner. Knowing most of what we know, we just don't know, and that we are dependent on the environment and others. And so we need to make sure that it's not a, a naive dependence on them, that we recognize that much of our thinking is outside of us. And so we need to think deeply and and, and think about causes and effects and and check ourselves to explain things and see if, if did we really have this right. Are we just depending on on what we heard and maybe our community isn't right practice just in time learning when we need to know something spend some time learning it and get a a good basis and try to simplify use simple rules of thumb i've i have tried to to simplify investing i don't spend time on option strategies i don't spend time researching individual stocks I'd rather just build diversified portfolio of primarily index funds and ETFs, some some active funds in in the bond space, and then I try to get as many portfolio drivers as possible, different things. And as the larger your portfolio, the more different asset classes you should have. I want to be asset class focused. Now the exact percentage doesn't matter. We just having multiple return drivers increases diversification. And then when it comes to actually adapting the portfolio, I don't have a complicated process. There's certain signals that I'm looking for. There was a recent paper that was brought to my attention by Alex, a listener to the show. It's called When a Storm is in the Offing, and it was put out by research affiliate. And they talked about that, well, i quote, today we enjoy all manner of weather prediction, from daily temperature forecasts and rain probabilities to warnings of severe storms replete with heavy winds and wave surges. Nonetheless, extreme storms that impact life and property are fairly infrequent, giving us the paradox of prediction. Forecasts are mostly boringly mundane, but sometimes crucially important. And in the paper, they talk about the same as for the equity markets, that most of the time things are boring, but there are signals that you can look for to suggest that choppy waters are ahead. I'll link to that particular paper in the show notes that you'll see at moneyfortherestofus soon to be moneyfortherestofus Hopefully, by the time you 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 search, it'll the site's being up. You know, we're installing that that new domain today. But most of the time, bore, forecast in the market is boring, and I see that in my own investing. I do a monthly investment conditions report where I'm looking at economic trends, looking at market valuations and looking at the level of fear and greed in the market. And most of the time, it's neutral, which means we hold to our asset allocation plan. But I try to keep it as simple as possible, rate things red, green, and yellow. And I do this for my own investing because we don't want to be overwhelmed with information. And we want to keep investing as simple as as possible, following simple rules we want to use just-in-time education. So when it's time to to focus on a particular topic, we can get the information we need. We can go out there and find it. So what happened to Christopher Knight, the man who spent 27 years in the Maine woods? He was captured in 2013 while trying to steal food from a summer camp. He was sentenced to seven months in prison and paid $1,500 in restitution for committing over 1,000 burglaries. Michael Finkel asked Knight what he learned over all those years of isolation. Knight said, It's complicated. Solitude bestows an increase in something valuable. I can't dismiss that idea. Solitude increased my perception. But here's the tricky thing. When I applied my increased perception to myself, I lost my identity. There was no audience. No one to perform for. There was no need to define myself. I became irrelevant. My desires dropped away. I didn't long for anything. I didn't even have a name. To put it romantically, I was completely free. When asked if there was some grand insight revealed to him in the wilderness, get enough sleep, Knight said. And that is episode 152. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. Simply general education on money. Investing the economy. Have a great week.